Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, good morning, everybody. Great to see you here this morning. Welcome to North. Guys, thank you so much for leading us in worship this morning. Um, Welcome back to our uh, series on Esther. Before we get started, though, we're going to bless our children, or actually our students. I can just call them children. They'll get upset at me for that, right? <laughs> middle school, they're always, they're, you guys are always our children, right, as a parent. But you're middle schoolers and high schoolers, so if there are students would stand, we're going to bless you guys as we send you out to your own space and uh, as a, 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 a way of speaking scripture over you, as a way of loving you and telling you that we I want God's favor over your lives. And so as we read from Ephesians, it says this. I'm going to read this first slide as we do, and then I'm going to ask you all to read with me the second slide. And if you'd like to extend your hand out as a a sign of a representation of blessing, you can do that at this time. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through love, through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then read this with me. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we love you guys. Go off to your class together. All right, so as I was saying, welcome back to our series on the book of Esther as we're going to continue. We're now in our fourth week, and as I discovered this past week, most of our staff doesn't really know the, even know the title of this series, so I just want to review it with you today. It's called Hidden Kingdom, Present King, and that is our study on the book of Esther. And so hopefully as, this, as we move on, now we're now in the fourth week, that this will begin to click. Um, but we're going through the book of Esther together, and as we do, um, it's good to be back this week. Uh, last week I was gone because of me and my wonderful wife Katie were celebrating my 40th birthday. And so, yeah. Thank you, thank you. That's... It's not why I did that, but thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and I don't know, I mean, 40 now. It feels kind of old for me. I know that that doesn't feel old to everybody in here. Um, but it's, but, and, and when I hear that you're 50 or 60 or 70, it doesn't feel old to me either. But this is happening to me. I am 40, and so it makes me feel old. Um, but uh, I, I had, and I've had a lot of people over the past, like, week or so ask me, like, how does it feel to be 40? And I got to tell you, we get these questions, like when you're 40, 50, 60, like people ask you, how does it feel to be 50? How does it feel to be 60? Like those questions happen all the time. And I want to look at them and say, like, it doesn't feel a whole lot different than 39, except that people p- keep asking me what it feels like to be 40. And so it gives me kind of grumpy, and maybe that's the big change when you turn 40. You start to get a little grumpy about just things that don't even really, shouldn't get you grumpy, but that's kind of where I'm at now, so... Um, so great, it's great to, anyway, it's great to be back. I was thankful to, for Larry for filling in last week, and uh, we're going to continue in the book of Esther this morning, and uh, if, you ha- if this is your first week with us in this series, first of all, where have you been, 
And secondly, um, it's great that you're joining us today because today is actually the turning point, really. It's maybe not the climax, but it's one of the peaks on the way to the climax of this story. As we look at Esther chapter 4 and 5, it is probably the place, if you know nothing else about the book of Esther, you know a little bit about what we're going to look at here this morning from Esther 4 and 5 because you have probably heard that really well-known phrase that comes from this book, which is Mordecai saying to Esther, who knows but that you have come to the kingdom, and say it with me, for such a time as this. All right, maybe that's not as well known as I thought it was, <laughs> but for such a time as this. So that well known, if you heard that saying before, that happens today in chapter four. We're going to see that happen here in a few minutes, but before we get to that place, let's review this wonderfully unique book from beginning from the beginning in chapter one and what we've been through uh, so far in this series so that we can connect it to what we're looking at in 4 and 5 this morning. As we open the book of Esther from chapter 1, we see uh, the author introduces us to this man by the name of King Ahasuerus. He's better known as King Xerxes in history, but King Xerxes is the Persian king that is reigning over the Persian Empire in the ancient world around 480 B.C., uh, during, the height, really, what, uh, during what is really the height of the Persian Empire. As Larry, as if you were here last week, Larry showed you the map of, as far as how far the Persian Empire extended at that point. It literally went from Asia to northern Africa all the way to modern-day Eastern Europe. And as we, as we see King Xerxes in chapter 1, he's sitting in his palace one day, and he decides to do what any ancient king with a god-sized ego, which Xerxes certainly has, does, which is he looks at something that he doesn't have, and he says, I want that. Reminds me a lot of my, of my five-year-old. When my five-year-old sees something, he says, I want that. And in this case, King Xerxes wants Greece. He looks beyond the borders of the Persian Empire, and he says, I don't have that. I want that. And so he calls all of the military leaders throughout the Persian Empire over to his palace, throws a six-month-long festival and party, and basically wines and dines them over the course of a week, trying to convince them to join him in his invasion of Greece. And in the midst of the party, we're told in chapter 1 that King Xerxes does this weird thing where he gets so drunk, he calls his wife, King Va Queen Vashti, to come out and to perform for, his, uh, for, for the men who were there at the party. And she has some self-respect, so she says no and declines his request. And as a result, Xerxes throws her out of the kingdom. She's no longer queen, and we don't know, know exactly what happened to her. She might have actually been executed as a result of that. But that's kind of how chapter 1 ends, and between chapter 1 and chapter 2, the war happens. What we know as the, as the Greco-Persian War happens, Xerxes gets enough support for the war, and he goes to attack Greece, and he's defeated in one of the most humiliating military defeats in all of ancient history. And when we open up to chapter 2, what we see is King Xerxes back in the palace, after being defeated by the Greeks, completely de depressed completely drunk again, extending his reign and extending his, his iron fist over his, his empire and in this place where he's completely downcast and depressed. And in all that's happened to him, being defeated by the Greeks and all this other crazy things that are going on, the one thing that the author tells us that he's really upset about is the fact that Queen Vashti is no longer there. Now, his advisors recognize this as well, so they come to the king and they say, hey, you're the king of Persia. You're the most powerful man on the planet. I got an idea for you. Hear me out. Take every virgin girl from all over the empire, bring her into the palace, lock her in a room, right? 
get them all ready to go, get them all dressed up, and you can spend a night with each one of them and decide which one you want to be the queen. Because that's the premise of every great love story, right? And I point that out because I think in some ways when we read this, we want, the hopeless romantic in us wants us to see like this is Esther coming from being, you know, an orphan girl to falling in love with the king. This is actually not what's going on here. This is not a love story. In fact, the king actually forcibly takes young teenage girls from the homes of their parents, forces them to live in the palace, and maybe, yeah, if you win evil king bachelor show, whatever it may be, then you get to be queen. But all the other hundreds of girls have to live their lives as sex slaves and cannot leave the palace and cannot see their families again and are doomed to live the rest of their life in the harem. And so this is a bad situation. And I say all that because the author spends a lot of time setting this context up for us because this is where we find Esther, who is, of course, the, uh, the, the, the one whom the book is named after. Esther finds herself as a young Jewish woman, probably her teenage years, as an exile in a foreign land, compelled by the king to be one of these women who's brought to the palace. Now, she, she ultimately wins the evil king bachelor show, and she gets to be the queen. But in the end, what we see is this chaotic, ridiculous, arrogant king and his kingdom. And all the damage, really, that he's caused throughout his rule, and his reign. Now, as bad as that is, at the end of chapter 2, as Larry took you through chapter 3 last week, you know that it gets even worse. Because Xerxes is one thing, he's a bad guy, but we're introduced to a guy who's even worse than Xerxes, a man by the name of Haman in chapter 3. And we're told from the very beginning, again, as Larry pointed out last week, we're introduced to Haman as Haman the Agagite. Now, Readers at that time, especially Jewish readers, would have understood exactly what was being meant by that. Haman the Agagite is basically saying, this guy Haman is a bad dude. It's bad news that this guy has so much power in the kingdom. And we see that he's ascended all the way through the ranks to a place of vizier, which is the right-hand man to the king. But not only is he vizier, but he's also got the king's signet ring, so he's got power to kind of make law or to propose law. So he's got more power even than a normal vizier does. And we recognize from the beginning, I mean, if, if the, the way the author describes Haman as an Agagite is almost like if, if Haman was in an old Western movie, it would be like he is the guy that walks into the first frame with the black cowboy hat on. The reference lost on most of you, I think. <laughs> but, by the way, that was a way of marking out who is obviously the bad guy. Um, and in every frame, the audience boos because they know this is the bad guy. Because not only was Haman the Agagite, who was named after Agag, the, uh, the uh, Amalekite king. Not only was he an enemy of the Israelites dating back generations, where there was this festering conflict that had been going on for hundreds of years, but the Amalekites were recognized by historians as one of the most brutal nations ever to exist in the ancient world. They were basically a terrorist organization, because what they would do is they would target the weak among their enemies, so they would target children and women and the elderly. And they would massacre those people as a way of sending a message, as intimidating and kind of inciting terror in the enemies that were around them. As far as I know, that's almost the textbook definition of terrorism, right? 
And so you get an idea of who Haman is from the very beginning. And as we see through chapter 3, he works his way into a place where he actually, at, by the end of chapter 3, proposes this law that goes into effect that King Xerxes agrees to pass. That is an edict that, that proposes to wipe out all of the Jews throughout the Persian Empire. About a, a million at least Jews who were living there in the Persian Empire at the time. So this is a bad dude. Now Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin, who also is her adoptive father, who raised her from the time she was young, is introduced to us as well back in chapter 2. And in Mordecai's case, who chapter 3, he's come up to a place where he is in the government, where he is somewhere as a government official. He's serving somewhere in the king's court. That's pretty clear. He's got some power, some influence. And when Haman is brought out as this new vizier and he asks everyone to bow before him, Mordecai recognizes the danger that Haman poses not only to the Jews, but to the entire empire and maybe even to King Xerxes himself. He recognizes Haman wants ultimate power and that he's a brutal, heartless, ruthless man. And so Mordecai makes a decision not to bow to Haman and to oppose his ascend to power. Now, it's really interesting what Mordecai does in chapter 3. Because at this point, we've seen Mordecai basically be a pragmatist, right? He tells, he tells Esther, for instance, don't tell them you're a Jew. And uh, apparently Mordecai hasn't told anybody he's a Jew either. And in all these ways that he's kind of worked his way up the political ladder, you can tell he's probably a very intelligent man. He's taken advantage of the resources and opportunities that he's had to climb to the place that he is. But when he stands, instead of, of kneeling or bowing before Haman, there were a few different things he could have done. If he was just appealing to King Xerxes and saying, look, Haman should not be the king, he would have said something like, King Xerxes is my king, and Haman, I don't like what you're doing. I don't want you to be king because King Xerxes is the rightful king. But what Mordecai does is actually something quite different. He says, I will not bow to Haman, not out of my respect for King Xerxes, not because I want to preserve the kingdom, but because I am a Jew, because I am one of God's people. This is the first, I think, confession of faith that we see from a character in the book of Esther. We see it come from Mordecai, and he says, I am a Jew, realizing what was at stake if he stands before this terrorist, this Amalekite who hates Jews, knowing what could happen to him. He takes a stand and he says, I am one of God's people. Now, that's important to see because as we get into chapters 4 and 5, Mordecai's experience and Mordecai's decision in that moment very much mirrors what we're going to see Esther experience in chapters 4 and 5. The same is at stake, the same kind of decision she has to make, a decision whether to side with this kingdom or to side with the kingdom of God, which has basically been set up from the very beginning. In chapter 1, we've seen this conflict of the kingdom of this world versus the kingdom of God kind of moving behind the scenes. This happens right here in Mordecai's life in chapter 3. And we we'll begin to see, I think we see it with Mordecai, but we see it with Esther as well. That although we've mentioned before, this book is the only biblical book that doesn't directly mention God, God starts to become visible through the faith of these two characters. It's kind of amazing to see that. And they're both in situations where they had to make a faith decision. They're facing a challenge to what they trust in and what they're going to put their full faith in. Are they going to trust in God's covenant promises to his people to be the one who delivers them? Or are they going to continue down the path they've been going to this point, the kingdom of this world? And I think this is important for us to see, too, because as these two characters progress in their faith, we see the definition of what faith really looks like. 
having a conviction and trust in a God whom they can't see, in a God whom, as exiles, they're looking around in their situation and saying, it doesn't seem like God is anywhere in this. What is God doing? Where is he moving? We're exiles in a foreign land. It doesn't even seem like he's speaking to us. Has he forgotten about us? And this is where it connects largely to our story. I've said previously, like, the point of this story is not to look at Esther and Mordecai and say, hey, we want to be like them, or we want to do this like they did and, do, and not do that. The, the reality is, it's not the ultimate purpose of this book, but it still is kind of the purpose of this book, right? And we see that actually happen in these few chapters. Because what we're meant to see is that just like as we walk in faith, we follow a God who we cannot see, Sometimes we live in situations and we live in a world where we look around and say, God, where are you in the midst of this? And yet, we make a decision to trust in faith in the God whom we cannot see in such a way that it actually changes the way that we live and the way that we understand ourselves. So, with that in mind, we're going to look at that this morning because this is what Esther is facing in chapters 4 and 5. It's what Mordecai faced in chapter 3. So we begin here in Esther chapter 4, verse 1. This takes place right after that edict has gone out from King Xerxes at the manipulation of Haman to eliminate all of the Jewish people in the kingdom of Persia. Verse 1, it says this, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, which is that this edict had gone out, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out to the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now let's pause there for a minute. Those three verses are supposed to paint the picture for us in case we miss... How big of a deal this was, this edict that went out throughout the empire. I mean, this is Holocaust-like language. It's disturbing language. And you see it by the way that Mordecai and the Jews react to the news that they've heard. Mordecai rips these clothes that were probably government official clothes that were really comfortable, made out of the best material. He rips them and he takes them off and puts on sackcloth, which was a representation of mourning, but it was also a constant reminder, the scratchiness of that cloth would remind you over and over again of the suffering and anguish that you're in. And as, as word spread throughout the empire, the Jews responded the same, weeping and lamenting. And a couple things emerge here. First of all, the danger that's there. And secondly, the desperation that the people have to deli- for God to deliver them. They're at a place where the most powerful man on the planet has just commanded their full extinction. Who is going to save them from this? And Mordecai goes to the king's gate hoping maybe that his influence and his connection with the king, or probably more likely that his connection with his cousin, Queen Esther, might reverse this decree. And he cries out at the king's gate, and this is Esther's reaction in verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And then Esther called for Hattach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hattach went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in the front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. 
Now Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went to Esther and, uh, with what Mordecai had said. And then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, and though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now look, for the first time in a while, then, as we drop into this part of chapter 4, we're brought back to seeing Esther. And last time we saw Esther, and in chapter 2, she was a woman who was caught between two identities. We were told that she has a Hebrew name, but then she also has this Babylonian name, which is Esther. She's a, and, and the author pictures for us this woman who is caught between two identities, two worlds, two kingdoms. And as the story begins to play out, we realize that it's going to come to this point where Esther has to make a decision. Which kingdom, which king is she going to align with? Is it King Xerxes, which represents all the worldly kingdoms? Or is it the kingdom of God, King Yahweh? And we know that Mordecai's come to this place where he's made his decision and he encourages Esther with this same kind of thing. You see, actually, this is a long chapter, but you see kind of the movement of Esther's faith from beginning to end. The first thing that happens is she has compassion on Mordecai because she's like, he's out there wearing sackcloth. And her first reaction is not to ask, like, why is he wearing sackcloth? Because it was an obvious demonstration that there was spiritual mourning going on or emotional mourning going on. It was a common practice in the ancient world. Her first reaction is to say, get him some clothes, right? As if Mordecai doesn't have a closet full of clothes, right? That's not the point. The point is he's wailing and weeping over the desperation of God to deliver them. And as this go back and forth with the messenger that happens probably over the span of a few days, goes back and forth, Mordecai is encouraging Esther to make a stand. Look, Mordecai's drawn a line in the sand saying, I trust in the God who will deliver us. And he's asking Esther to do the same thing. And so, He tells Esther, look, you've got access to the king. Just go talk to him. Plead with him. Maybe he'll change his mind about this decree. You don't understand what's at stake. Millions of people could die. And she says, well, you know, Mordecai, there's this law that says if I go to the king without being invited, and if I go into the inner court where he is to his throne, then I'll get killed. Like the death penalty for doing something like that. And What's interesting is that Mordecai, I don't, think, I don't think Mordecai's, you know, I don't think this is news to Mordecai. Like Esther's trying to inform him about this, but Mordecai was a political official. He well knew the king's law. In fact, this was a common practice for ancient kings because these jack wagons thought they were gods, basically. And so 
they sat there, and as people came in, they're basically like, you cannot approach the king without being invited. And so she says to him, and Mordecai says basically, look, I get it. I know there's a law there. He completely ignores that and says, look, I am calling you to respond in faith in this. And he says to her, look, salvation's going to come, redemption, we will be delivered as Jews. God is going to do this. And this is a statement and confession of faith. He is the sovereign God who is in control. He's promised that he's going to do it, and he's going to do it. Now, you can either join with that and join with that mission and be a part of what God is doing, or you can continue to live in that kingdom. And you may live for a few years in comfort and in luxury, Esther, but in the end, that thing is temporary and it's coming down. So Esther's faced with this decision. Who am I going to trust in? The, the king of this world, King Xerxes, or King Yahweh, who has promised that he will deliver us? And ultimately, her decision here will determine her destiny. Is she going to place her trust in Xerxes' kingdom or the kingdom of God? And the author has really been setting this up for us from the very beginning. And we see that this is the decision point of Esther. This is the place where she has to make that decision of faith. So in this context, that famous statement from Mordecai to Esther is a question of faith. Mordecai is asking Esther, ultimately, who do you trust in? Who knows but that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? That God has brought you to this place so that he might bring you to faith. Look, I wonder in some ways if Mordecai heard that same question in his mind as he stood before Haman. Who knows, Mordecai, but you might have come to the place that you're in for such a time as this. In the end, the decision comes down to Mordecai challenging Esther with the same challenge he himself faced. I think immediately, I believe what we can call Esther's confession of faith happens here. She says, okay, ask the Jews to, to, to pray. Well, pray is implied here, I think, but definitely to fast for three days, and then I'll go and I'll see the king. And her statement of faith is essentially this, if I perish, I perish. In other words, if I die because of this, I know that I'm dying with the kingdom of God. Versus living out whatever the life may look like in the kingdom of the world. Even in the place that I'm in as the queen, the most powerful woman on the face of the planet. And Esther 5, verse 1, is where she walks in to the king's throne room. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. In front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom." And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Well, then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Well, then Esther answered, my wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And verse 9, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. 
But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, and then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now this is the moment, you see the tension there when Esther walks in to make her request to the king, uninvited. Now, I think one thing that's a bit of foreshadowing in this is Esther calling for the fast of the Jews at the end of chapter 4. I think in some ways, maybe it's surprising that the king responds the way he does. I think the most surprising thing about how the king responds is that he not only says, hey, come here, Esther, I'm not going to kill you, here's the golden scepter, but he actually says to her, hey, Esther, it's great to see you. In fact, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want, half of my kingdom if you want it, which was a big deal, by the way, because kings back then, they didn't sign prenups. They were not fans of prenups. And so, and she owned absolutely nothing, and for him to say, like, for him to say, you can have half of my kingdom was a really big deal. I mean, it was almost like God is telling Esther, you've made the right decision. I've got this. But one of the things we realize about Esther is that before she goes in to the king, she doesn't ask Mordecai for advice on what she should say. She doesn't study any kind of books on how to approach a king when you're uninvited, anything like that. She just says, Pray and fast, because I know that God will protect me and God will deliver me. And she walks in, and sure enough, if we're reading this correctly, we see really from the beginning all these coincidences and the way that God's hand has been on Esther, and she comes from this, you know, she's this humble beginnings, this rags-to-riches story, is all about God's hand through the entire thing. So if we're reading this and we see it, it's not surprising that the king responds the way he does. In some ways, as I read this, the thing that's most surprising to me is what Esther's reaction is right? I mean, the king, that's your window. If there's a window of opportunity, it seems like when the king says, you can have half my kingdom, that might be the time to say, hey, you know that law, that crazy law that you enacted about killing a million people in your empire? Can you just like rescind that? Can you just call that back? But what does she say? She says, uh, I want to throw a feast. There's a reason behind this. But she says, I want to throw a feast for you and Haman. So she's like, great, sounds good. Somebody call Haman, let's get him together, let's, let's have dinner tonight. And they're sitting at dinner, and, Haman, and, and, and excuse me, Xerxes realizes, he's like, that can't be it. There's got to be so. Why would you risk your life to just have a feast for us? What is it that you really want, Esther? Again, half my kingdom, you can have it all. And she says to him, I want to I make you an even better feast tomorrow. You two guys, big feast tomorrow. What do you, what do you say? Well, look, we know how Xerxes is really fond of over-the-top feasts, especially ones that honor him, and so it's no surprise that he says yes. And then we're told in the second part, and that's how the, this, this chapter leaves Esther, but we're told in the second part this kind of curious scene where the author focuses on Haman. He leaves out of the palace, grinning ear to ear, basically completely joyful because he spent the night dining with the king and the queen. So he calls up all his friends, gets them on a group text or whatever, and he says, hey, come over to my house. I got something to tell you. 
And he essentially has a party, a brag party for himself, right? He says, guys, I got to tell you, look at, all this, look at all the cool stuff that's going on in my life. I don't know about you, but I got to eat with the queen tonight and the king. And by the way, they've invited me to come back tomorrow. And look at all the money I have. Look at my beautiful children. And, uh, and, and look, at this, look at this position, this cool position of vizier. The king gave me a signet ring. I mean, look at how awesome I am, right? I mean, this guy, right? And I'm thinking to myself, who does something like this? I'm like, this vaguely familiar sounds a lot like Facebook, right? <laughs> who knew that Haman, the Agagite, invented Facebook? I'm kidding. That's mean. That's mean. I'm sorry. But he's in this position where he's like, everything's great except this one guy, Mordecai. He won't bow to me. And is anyone, who is, is anyone with an ego like his, the one thing that drives you crazy is the one person who won't feed your ego. And he gets to this place where he's obsessing about it. He's like, what do I do? And his wife, Suresh, apparently trying to comfort her husband, says to him, look, you got the king's signet ring. Just build a gallows and hang this guy. Get rid of him if he bothers you that much. But she says, not only build a gallows, but build one 75 feet high, 50 cubits. Seven stories in the sky. To give you an idea uh, of what, how high that is, um, if you're familiar with the college basketball mecca that is the McHale Center in Tucson, Arizona, where your Arizona Wildcats play basketball, the floor of the McHale Center to the inside ceiling is 77 feet tall. So she basically says to him, hang that guy from the top of a basketball arena. Now, young man, here's a bit of advice. If you're dating a woman and you're talking to her one day and you say, hey, this guy's really bothering me at work, and she says to you, build a gallows 70 feet high and just hang that guy on it, run from that woman. Stay away. That's crazy town. And even for a terrorist, this is pretty extreme. And Haman looks at that and says, yeah, that's a good idea. Thank you, sweetie. Let's do that. And that's how chapter 5 ends. Now, here's the thing. I mentioned earlier that chapters 4 and 5 are the turning points of this book in the book of Esther. And we get to the end of chapter 5, and there's not a whole lot of resolution here. The edict is still out. It's in effect. Haman is still murderously seeking after Mordecai. We don't know whether he's going to escape or not. And so how is this a turning point in the book? Well, the focus is ultimately on the faith of Mordecai and Esther. Everything begins to change when they begin to say, we have placed our faith in the God of Israel, in Yahweh. And in the face of losing everything, they come to a place and say, if he doesn't deliver us, we die. And that's faith. They have a crisis of faith in that moment. Now, when I say crisis of faith, I'm referring to just kind of, when I, when I say crisis of faith, I'm referring to something that causes us to question everything that we have previously believed in, to believe in something else or something new. Mordecai and Esther face a crisis of faith because they had lived life a certain way. They maybe had kind of this religious affiliation in their background, but at the same time, the things that were keeping them safe was their own ingenuity, their way of kind of navigating through the political power systems of the Persian Empire, Maybe their status, their power, their influence, their relationships. Certainly for Queen Esther, her beauty and her charm. But they get to this place where they realize that is not going to save us from this. And they cry out in desperation to the God who was promised to deliver them. Now look, all of us face times of crisis of faith in our lives. All of us get to that place, and this was good for Mordecai and Esther because they had to ask the deeper questions 
that many times we want to avoid, which is why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we living the way that we're living? And what do we ultimately trust in? And I think for every person, Christ follower or not, these times of crisis of faith, which we may only have a handful of these times that actually alter the trajectory of our lives, will happen from time to time and need to happen. Because we need to get to that place where we are asking ourselves, who are we ultimately trusting in? Do I have the kind of faith that says, if Jesus doesn't deliver me, I perish? Or are we religious people who hedge our bets in case Jesus doesn't come through? I've got security here. I've got protection from fear over here. I've got my identity wrapped here just in case the gospel isn't true. I want to offer you a little encouragement as we finish this morning. Look at chapter 5 again, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. In front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor or grace in his sight. Now, you may have caught this when we first read through it. But there are all kinds, I see all kinds of echoes to the gospel of Jesus in this. For instance, the third day piece right there. In the, in the Midrash, which was a Jewish commentary of the time about the scriptures in the Old Testament, they pointed out that the third day throughout scripture is recognized as the day of redemption. Happens with Abraham, happens here in the book of Esther, it happens with Jonah. And if you remember one thing that Jesus said at one point in the gospels, the sign of Jonah will be given to them. This is the day of redemption. And so as Esther is pictured walking into the inner courts, inner court triggers the inner courts of the temple of God, the Holy of Holies. She walks into this place. She is covered in the royal robes. And because she's covered in the royal robes, grace comes to her. Now look, in the midst of all of this, I want to see if you can see the echoes. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 14 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, the mercy seat, the throne of God, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 6.19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now look, I don't believe the language in Esther is coincidental as far as how it mirrors not only the Old Testament and the approaching of the inner court, but also the way that Jesus brings us past that veil of division into the very presence of God. What we're to recognize here is it's not the golden scepter in the hand of King Xerxes that extends grace to Esther and covers her. It's the cross of Jesus ultimately that covers her in grace. And just as Esther and Mordecai trusted in the covenant promises of God, We as a church, as Christ followers, are called to do the same. Paul says this about just completely abandoned faith. Look, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if there is no redemption, if Jesus didn't die on the cross, then we are most pitied. 
Because everything that we believe about how we are saved, about who we are, about what covers our guilt and our shame and redeems the world depends upon Jesus' redemption. That's what real faith looks like. I don't hedge my bets because Jesus and his work is all I need. And we sometimes talk about something like radical faith as if it's abnormal. And there's a truth to where that is, and there's a sense to where that is true because when you look at the world, people don't live by radical faith. But I believe for the Christian, it's normal. You know what I believe Jesus calls radical faith? Faith. Because he says to us, if you're going to come to me, come and die. This is not just an idea. This is not just kind of a spiritual carrot on a stick. Not a, a place where like one day you'll get there. He says, look, the prerequisite to following me is come and die. Die to everything else that you might believe will save you. Die to everything else that might, you might believe gives you identity and promise and hope in this world because I can carry it, and I've carried it for you. In the end, we're at a place where Mordecai and Esther were. If I perish, I perish. But I inherit the kingdom of God through Jesus. I want to invite the band to join us as we respond this morning. And as we respond, the response stations on each side of the stage on those tables are torn pieces of cloth. In some ways, they remind me of that veil that was torn through Jesus' redemption that separate us, separated us from the presence of God. What I want to ask you to do this morning is during our response time, if you would make your way over to the table, and um, we're going to place Wes is working on bringing the cross right over here in the middle. And if you grab that cloth, and whatever it is this morning that is causing maybe a crisis of faith in your life, maybe it's doubt, maybe it's disappointment, maybe it's suffering, maybe it's pain, whatever that may be, allow that cross to represent it and lay it on the arms and rest it on the cross as a representation of knowing that Jesus can bear the weight of that for you. And he has borne the weight of that for you. And maybe for you this morning, like things are good and you feel like, man, me and Jesus are tight and that's good. Still, this is an opportunity for you to redouble down on. This is my trust in the one who has set me free. And everything that I'm searching for and all the guilt and shame and all the brokenness and the things that cause me to question and doubt, he can handle it. The weight of the cross has sealed that for us. And I want to read this final quote to you as we think about that. It's a quote from Paul Tripp. It's a little long. It's from one of his devotionals, but it says this. Look, I don't know how much you've thought about this, but faith isn't natural for you and me. Doubt is natural. Fear is natural. Living on the basis of your collected experience is natural. Envying the life of someone else and wondering why it isn't your life is natural. Wishing that you were more sovereign over people, situations, and locations than you will ever be is natural. Manipulating your way into a personal control so that you can guarantee that you get what you think you need is natural. Looking horizontally for the peace that you will only find vertically is natural. Anxiously wishing for change in things that you have no ability to change is natural. Giving way to despondency, discouragement, depression, or despair is natural. Numbing yourself with busyness, material things, media, food, or some other substance is natural. Lowering, lowering your standards to deal with your disappointment is natural, but faith 
simply isn't natural to us. So in grace, God grants us to believe. He is rescuing you from thinking that you can save the life that you were meant to live while relying on the inadequate resources of your wisdom, experience, righteousness, and strength. He is transforming you into a person who lives a life shaped by radical God-centered faith. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Father, we thank you for the gift of the grace of faith in our lives. And we know that it's not natural for us to be people of faith, but Lord, you have given us that gift and you embolden us by your spirit. And so we ask that we would grow in what faith looks like, that more and more as we live, our lives would speak, obviously saying and confidently saying that my hope is in this cross that it is strong enough to bear the weight of all the sin of the world and all the shame and grief and brokenness that we will ever experience to bring us to that day of redemption and Lord Jesus we are thankful Beyond words, we stand in awe at your mercy and grace in our lives. And Lord, we admit that we don't know fully what it means for us to break through the veil and sit at the throne of grace with confidence and boldness, but thank you that you teach us and you're patient with us to see more and more what that means. We pray all these things in your name, our great high priest, Lord Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You know, part of what we do is respond to God's word. And so we saw this really amazing scene where Esther calls for the fasting and I believe the praying also of the Jews. And so we're going to follow this path with her as well as we continue through this series. And so what we're doing is on the third week of the next three months, we're going to meet for prayer here in this room at 530, from 530 to 630 on Wednesday nights. It's right before our student ministry. So if you've got a student bring them to the prayer meeting, and then they can go to student ministry afterwards in our midweek gathering. But we want to invite you to be a part of this. This is going to be open for us to pray together. If you need prayer, our prayer partners who are actually at the response stations this morning, if you need prayer, will be there as well. And it's also an opportunity to pray for our city, for our church, for all kinds of things, just to seek the Lord through these times. So again, the third week of the next three months, which happens to be this Wednesday, and then the third Wednesday in December, the third Wednesday in January. We want to invite you to join us. And the fasting piece in two weeks when we start into Advent, we're going to challenge you. We're going to talk about what it means for us to fast, to give up things because we are anticipating and waiting on our Lord Jesus and what we celebrate at Christmas. And that our dependence is upon him. It's a way of also, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean fast from food. It might be fast from spending so that you can give more, you can be more generous. 
during the Christmas season, whatever it may be. But in two weeks, be prepared. So we're going to ask you to write that thing down as our response time. So be thinking about that, be praying about that. But we want to see you this Wednesday and the next month, three, third Wednesday, and then the third Wednesday after that in the month of January. So thank you. Great to see you. I know I've cut into your lunch a little bit. Hopefully none of you are late for your lunch reservation. But I think it's worth it. So I'm kind of not sorry. <laughs> May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ go with you this week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.